was in a rock band, played in the likes of LA at the Whiskey and Starwood, those kind of clubs, as well as every high school dance (laughs) and party that we could. Is there an LP out there that we should be tracking down? There is video. (laughs) Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Brendan Bradley with the Fifth Wall Forum, committed to bringing together industry insiders from the theater and technology worlds to create opportunities for new kinds of virtual performance. And today I'm having a conversation with Tim Kashani, co-founder of Apples and Oranges Studios and IT mentors, creating work environments where technology and the arts converge. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Fifth Wall Forum Discord channel, a robust community of hundreds of technologists and artists sharing job postings, tutorials, upcoming performances, and the home of Artifract Friday, where our mentors and collaborators share artifacts from their work, giving Fifth Wall Forum members a first glimpse at the latest in innovation and immersive storytelling. Find out more at our website at fifthwallforum.com. That's 5-T-H-W-A-L-L-F-O-R-U-M.com. And now let's get to the conversation. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for that kind introduction. Thanks for being here. When I first reached out to you, you were immersed in the Jimmy Awards or the National High School Musical Theater Awards. Can you jump right in talking about your work helping young people bring a 21st century approach to access in arts education and resources? Happy to. And I'll tell you, the the young people jumped right into it. Part of our journey was to work with those in our traditional industry to make them comfortable enough to shine at what they do. And it's something that I know you're very well aware of is that the art forms as they converge need both what we know traditionally as well as what is emerging. And we have been involved with the Jimmy's Awards for the last eight years prior. So at least we knew what the goal was, which is all about the nominees and not about us. But it was it was a challenge to take 72 students, send them a kit that had to be all normalized for under $200, which included microphones, green screens, lights, and not only train virtually, but capture footage that could be used in multiple different ways. Wow. Wow. And then do those nominees get to continue on with that kit? Like by this time next year, will they have found even new workflows and new ways to kind of kit bash this thing together and get the best product? They get to keep everything. And your point is so well taken. What really was the education. In fact, many of them said that. Some of them said, I wish I would have known you before I did all my college applications and (laughs) auditions because- Many universities are doing virtual and will continue to do virtual, at least for the first or second round. And simply knowing how to use Zoom and set the volume properly and where to put the microphone, how to make sure the microphone's being picked up, what you should look like lit. It's stuff in the traditional world we've taught how to walk into the room, how to put your music down at the accompanist. When we go to technology, a lot of people jump to, well, it's Zoom. I just open the meeting. Or it's a headset. I just throw it on and magic is supposed to happen. (laughs) And we have found that it's the pre-production, not surprisingly, is the huge difference between success or, uh, or learning experiences. Do you find, you know, we always get into this kind of traditional left brain, right brain conversation about artists, right? Do you, do you find that there is an inherent kind of the people that are much more creative and imaginative than struggle with the component? Or is it just a total constellation and randomness of finding out who struggles at what and who's actually really magically skilled at certain things or didn't realize how good they would be at certain things? It's more of B. And people have always kidded me saying that you use both sides of your brains. You started a technology company and you produce and direct Broadway shows. Like, how how does that work? (laughs) To me, ultimately, it's the same thing where you take an idea and you have to surround yourself with other people that you trust and who are going to push you to move that idea, to turn it into the best thing that it can. And that requires people with different skill sets in the way they use different sides of the brain. And early on, I was speaking with our entire team, which was not only apples and oranges, but all of the Uh, folks from the Broadway League, and then we worked with Pittsburgh CLO, and then there was stage managers and composers and all this group. And I said, from my tech background, I can tell you that 
90% of the people are going to be fine. And about 10% <laughs> are going to be 90% of our work. Because oh, that's wow. just yeah, how that's it tends to be. Yeah. And the sooner that we can make them comfortable and make the tech disappear, the better chance we have at artistic performances. Now, unfortunately, they were some of them were finding out up until a few days before the program even started. So we worked with the regional organizations and the support group, as many people as we could, so that when we hit the ground day one, immediately we had tech support going, we had training going. And I always tried to keep the atmosphere light because it's very intimidating. Some of these, especially some of the younger ones, freshmen, sophomore, and they're, they're meeting Broadway veterans as their coaches. And they're being told that they're going to be filmed using their camera and their phone, actually. And they have to sing into a track that's going to be mixed later. And, and it's so much technical information. Yeah. And the same thing with anything we do in virtual reality we, for when we're working with actors or any artist for that matter. It's, I find they have to be technical enough. And what I mean by that is they... They've got to have a spark, a willingness to give things a try. They don't need a degree in computer science, and they don't right. need to, as you said, hack together their own 3D X, Y, and Z. But if they're willing to take a ride, willing to laugh at their own foibles, <laughs> and realize that you are going to disappear in a world, you are going to lose your sound, you're... Everything that right, can happen right. will happen. Come on the journey <laughs> with me. Speaking of kind of using both these sides of your brain, during the Fifth Wall Forum kickoff, you offered kind of a crash course in the history of immersive hardware. Uh, but behind you was also and is today a museum of guitars. <laughs> and I'd love to hear about how you yourself unplug or rather plug in to still keep your own artistry and kind of relaxation alive while balancing so many projects. It's, I don't know any other way because it's easy to fall into the technical trappings because they are also fun. And I, I find that the two complement each other. So my personal history is I started playing guitar very young and was in a rock band, played in the likes of LA at the Whiskey and Starwood, Excellent. those kind of clubs, as Excellent. well as every high school dance <laughs> and party that we could. And is there money. an LP out there that we should be tracking down? There, I, I can, there is video even. <laughs> Of an one of the our drummer's dad bought one of the first VHS cameras in the time, and it's terrible quality, but oh, is it fun to watch? <laughs> but I also made films, eight millimeter films. In fact, convinced my one of my best friends, we convinced our English teacher for the senior project to make a film instead of having to write something because we were all taking the AP test. And so I wanted to go to SC Film School, but the cost of SC versus going to University of California, Irvine, which is where I went, was noticeably different. <laughs> and I picked UCI and I thought, well, I've played with a TRS-80. Computers are kind of fun. Why not do computer science? And I did. And the first year there was insanely intense where they know that half the people are not going to make it through the first year. Wow. And you were, you're told that on day one. They said, look around. In fact, I think it's something like 40% weren't even going to be there after the first class. But the cool thing about it was whether it be programming, which these classes were, or whether it be figuring out how to, in our rock band, we were going to make pyrotechnics out of using rocket launchers and floodlights. It's that MacGyverness in me that I love a challenge and I love seeing if I can solve a problem. And that's where I find people that do, whether they play instruments or they have something that they grew up with, painting, sculpturing, there's something inherent about art that teaches that, which is why I'm such an advocate about early school systems having that as an opportunity, even if they're not going to be in theater when they grow up, or they're not going to play the tuba. The mere act of learning it 
fosters that side of the brain, which is so critical when it comes to problem solving. And do you find that it organically comes up in your daily practice that you're noodling on the guitar? Or is it something you structure into your day or your week to make sure that you have that escape? Much more noodling. I have tried to structure it many <laughs> times. And then it starts to feel like a job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's in the calendar next to all the other Zoom yes. calls. <laughs> I also consider myself a lifetime learner. I, I love being stumped. I whether it be looking at Unreal Engine 5.0 and how you're going to be able to create metahumans that are going to sing and dance, or it is how to draw a better storyboard for film, or even sometimes just the structure of what quantum computing is doing and how we are extending life through cellular-based computation. I, I just love that. And so I do build that time in, again, unstructured, you just can't fall down the rabbit hole, I think, as we all know, which does happen sometimes <laughs> on weekends. You give yourself the latitude where you start reading about quantum computing and then you end up right. Easter eggs right. on the new Spider-Man right. trailer. <laughs> um, speaking of film, but on a very micro level, you uh, turned to YouTube during the shutdown to put out free tutorials and information to really empower the community. When I make those videos, I feel like I'm screaming into the void, but I wanted to know your journey about kind of opening up this kind of like shared knowledge base, um, especially during a time when so many people were for the first time willing to dip their toe in the integrative technology pool. About six years ago, we created an initiative called Showbiz U under our nonprofit. And the idea for that was to take away the curtain of, or the veil of illusion that us Broadway people knew better than anybody else. We're mm. just people that happen to arrive at a certain location. And we interviewed a lot of different people from all backgrounds, artists who are performers as well as stage managers. And they all said the same thing is it's kind of a messy road to get there, but it's all about collaboration. And we did that for a few years, and then we morphed that into our theater accelerator program, which is to treat artists like entrepreneurs. That's a two-week program, and created a lot of content during that. That coupled with a close friend of mine is the person who actually named Zoom and has been <laughs> got me to use the product back in 2014, 13, somewhere around there. So I knew Zoom inside and out. I knew some of the people at Zoom. So when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, people were understandably rife with fear as to what's going to happen. And so we just looked at all the different quadrants of people that might need some help. And rather than me doing one-ons with people, I would take stuff that was the most universal and put it up on YouTube. And then if somebody had a question, I'd say, just go watch that. And right. then- smart they would come back with much, much more advanced questions. And that's where then we threw together these little mini classes for people that we underwrote the whole thing. Um, we worked with NAMPT organization for regional theaters, as well as some of the other artist groups out there where we just underwrote galas, we underwrote celebrity event, birthday parties, you name it, just so that we could keep that human connection. And I've, come from an open source philosoph philosophical background. And so we just shared everything. We taught people how to do it and people ran with it. And what was exciting is some of them, I would then talk to six months later and they'd teach me something because they were now really focused on one particular area. That's what I love about the open source community in general, and especially kind of knowledge sharing, is that like when other people then really go down their process, they discover things you didn't even know that these products could do, because you would have never thought to open up that tab or toggle on that switch. You're 100% right. And it's also, <laughs> it's a sharing community. And where we are, well, you and I are converts, and we do see the human side of the value of what these new technologies are bringing. And the deep ability to take new voices, new stories, and share them in a way that they just can't happen in the traditional world because of the scale. Like live theater, there are only so many physical theaters, and every one of them can only do so many shows per year. 
And if we can do something that creates a world where I'm getting to see new work by artists who I may have never met, who are in a different part of the world, come from a different ethnic background, yet I find that empathetic skin jump in the same story that they're telling, then I feel like I will leave the world a better place than I entered it. And that's what excites me most about these technologies. Speaking of directly infusing these new voices, getting into your theater accelerator, I'd love to know, you you have this two-week lab that develops and helps develop and distribute original musicals. Can you talk about any of these projects that we should have our eyes and ears maybe open for this fall? I that's almost like asking which child is your favorite child. You don't have to um, pick one. You can talk, talk about tw- <laughs> 200 shows. This could be the next three hours of the podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I will say that they all are up on our website and there are a few that we are helping move forward. And I will talk about one that is in development right now or a couple that are in development right now. One is uh, at the river I stand, which came through recently which is the true story of sanitation workers in a time when Martin Luther King's march was taking place, one of the last march, the peaceful marches, and these sanitation workers were killed in an accident with a sanitation struck. And as you can see, I'm being careful because I don't want to give away too much because we are building right now a virtual reality experience that actually takes place before the show itself. So the show that came through starts with a peace concert that's leading up to a march. And we wanted to explore through the point of view or put the audience through the point of view of what it's like when you find a calling, something that you feel is bigger than you and how you are invited in, and what choices do you make? And we're working with the two authors right now, as well as a small team of developers that we've worked with on other projects to create this visceral experience in VR that will then also make its way and carry it into the traditional stage experience. There's another one that we've been working with for a couple of years called Airborne, which is the true story of the first female air derby from 1929 and about these amazing, powerful, cloud-breaking women who ushered flight into a whole new generation. And not only their struggles, but really celebrating the camaraderie that, uh, that they've gone through. So those are those are two that were immediately in, plus stuff that we've developed internally to at first test out technology, but then have turned into shows that will be on multiple platforms. And do you find that the conversations you're getting to have with those artists through the technology of thinking about, for example, a virtual reality call to action for something larger than yourself or taking literally to the skies to experience stories that we haven't heard before – do you find that these different tools and formats and distribution outputs are giving are lending themselves to opening up the creative and opening up the storytelling? 100%. When we started the the background story on Theater Accelerator, it came out of I was at a TED conference. I I go once a year to the main conference and I was sitting at a dinner with with venture capitalists and they were all talking about how difficult their world is and how risky it is. And I said, <laughs> nothing. Come to a Broadway show. We go seven years, invest a bunch of money, and even after seven years, eight out of ten shows will close and lose everything. They're like, what? Why does that happen? And I said, well, one of the challenges is we're not empowering the artists to think as entrepreneurs. We want They have to wait for permission to get their art done. And I said, what we really need is like a 500 startups or Y Combinator for Broadway. And one of my close friends said, well, you're that person, go do it. (laughs) And so we had initially designed this to be a for-profit venture with a fund where we were going to treat them similar to how we would treat other VC startups. And I just, I got a lot of pushback, not, even though we were going to pay a significant amount of money, um, they were going to give a small portion of the show into it so that it would feed other shows not from the artists as much as from our industry of people who just couldn't quite grasp your exact question. 
most people thought of technology as something that comes near the end mm -hmm. that supports what's on a page rather than looking at it as symbiotic to the creative process. Mm. And that exact question went into the DNA of how we built Theater Accelerator, which is we weren't going to tell anybody how or what they should do. We were just going to show them everything from how the financial structures work, the marketing structures. And then in the last few classes, we gave them headsets and we were showing them how you can rapidly prototype in a built world in alt space with 10 minutes, you can be up on a stage. Right, right. And they'd say, well, I can do that in Zoom. And I said, yes, you can. And I'd love to do readings on Zoom. It's fine. But there is a difference. Mm -hmm. And until somebody puts on that headset, they don't quite understand it. But the minute they put it on, they immediately get it. Yes. And that's what's informing everything we do going forward is that it's not one or the other. It is E, all of the above. And sharing these tools with artists, they're going to create stuff that I haven't even dreamed about mm -hmm. five or I was going to say five years from now, but it might be five months from now. <laughs> That's the, true. Right, right. <laughs> just even in the fifth wall form. I mean, what you, you all did was insanely risky as far as, huh, we're going to start. We don't know how it's going to end. Right. We're going to put a bunch of people together who don't know each other. Uh -huh. We're not paying them. <laughs> and they got to get along. They got to tell a story. I, I remember talking to Kyle Wright and, and like, do you want to start a pool about how many actually make it through? <laughs> and when you saw that, I mean, almost everybody three months later had definitely exceeded my expectations. Absolutely. It was so heartwarming and it validated what those of us that have been knocking around saying, Hey, it's coming and there's cool stuff. We can use it for so many years. And so what you do and what we try to do in theater accelerator is to give people language, give them ideas that they might not know how to execute, but somebody else knows how to execute and they're, they're going to work on it together. But yeah, it's, it's so exciting right now. And then I can't wait to see what the next few years are going to bring. I don't know if you can talk about it, but I had the privilege of attending a VR workshop of a new musical you're developing called Winter Lights for a museum, I believe, in Orange County. A science center. As someone to science center in Orange County. Yes. As someone developing an original musical for a museum myself, I'd love to hear your advice about merging the physical and the virtual for a non-traditional venue and audience. We have a long relationship. Uh, used to be called the Discovery Science Center, now Discovery Cube here in Orange County. And then there's also the LA Science Center where 10 years ago, I believe, we helped them craft an exhibit called the Science of Hockey. So working with Anaheim and the Samueli Foundation, they had designed what was going to be this experiential floor where you were looking at all the science that went into hockey and they came to us and said how do we make this fun and we ran with it we made videos we did all kinds of cool stuff we created a sock puppet character we i mean you name it we, we just did it so we've always had this wonderful relationship my wife has been on the board and i've helped with uh, other capital campaign aspects and so a few years ago one of the critical drivers is helping the next generation not only understand the value of STEM, but as we like to say, STEAM. The two really go hand in hand when it comes to solving and tackling some of these massive problems that we have. And we actually started this in January, right before COVID shut it down. And the okay. idea back then was a traditional show. They had built this beautiful theater that the Gazillion Bubble Show started off as Bubble Fest there 20 years ago when it was a tent. And so they had the bubble show that was going to be in this theater. But it's a flex space that's massive and they needed more content. And so we wrote a show about a young mixed race girl in Santa Ana who wants to be a scientist. And 
like all scientists, she's failing and her project isn't working, of course, the night before the big <laughs> science fair. And it's got to right. work because her life depends on it when the magical science fairy comes and takes her on this journey for her to learn that, well, science is about failing. Like that's how we learn. In fact, there's a song called Learn to Fall. And we, I guess, had to <laughs> follow our own advice because then COVID hit and <laughs> live theater shut down. Right. And so we said, well, it was supposed to be live last November and December. And this January and February, we knew that things were going to be happening. And so we said, let's build it in VR. I was part of a group that was one of the original investors in Altspace. And so I used the platform forever. I said, let's, let's just throw it together in Altspace. Let's actually prove one of our concepts that we can save our traditional lab workshop time that we would normally do on Broadway, which costs a lot of money and takes time. Let's see if we can squeeze that down to a few months, spend a fraction of the cost and truly develop the story and actually bring people in virtually that have never used headsets. There's one grand experiment and we did it. And it was absolutely amazing to see what we were able to do in that amount of time with actors who all but one, except for my wife, Pamela, who had done a show in virtual reality already in the Venice Film Festival. She was the only actor that had ever done VR right. and it was only her second piece. Within three days, they were coming to rehearsal like it was any rehearsal. In fact, they got very emotional That's because great. we're all isolated in our own rooms. But yet when you were in that rehearsal room, you felt a kinship. And we had success with it. As, as you probably know, the platforms themselves are just getting to the point where you can do productions that can be monetized on them. And there's lots of cool things that are coming down the pipeline. So we said, let's just build out now the tools and techniques, knowing that this ecosystem is going to continue to grow around it. And so now that show is still in development. We just decided to not bring it live this year simply because of the COVID numbers and sure, uh, sure. just safety because it's a show that's yeah. meant for an entire family. And even with vaccinations, 12 and under are not going to be vaccinated. Uh, and so we're continuing to work on it and we're continuing to do the virtual pieces and actually moving them a step farther now to create assets that are stage ready or film ready or whatever the show needs. And that's where we're now spending our 2021, 22 efforts in looking at how you can not only take what would normally be a proof of concept or prototype in a new show where we would do a lab or workshop, but what does a full set of assets for productions look like? And how can you use sister technology like they're using in film with the volume and what they're doing in Unreal with parallaxing cameras to tie to back mm -hmm. sets and have practical costumes or lights that are being DMX controlled by a physical <laughs> light board that's talking to the virtual light board, which is connecting yep. to a widget that is tied to a gizmo. And, <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm totally a kid in a candy store because this is the stuff I love more than anything to figure out how do we make all of this stuff work? It's insane and maddening and most people hate it, but I love it. <laughs> well, you talk a lot about scalability and I think that yes, the upfront labor of building an asset that can move and, and flow into a variety of different pipelines or ecosystems. Yes, that, that is labor intensive um, and figuring that out is hard, but it does allow the work to scale and journey to wherever it can truly find its best audience. That's exactly right. And that's, that's our hypothesis right there. And we're also now working on financial structures that are, I'm looking at what's happening in the blockchain crypto NFT world where you are working with artists who might take a risk with you on the line to understand how when these things become monetizable, they can create recurring revenue streams too. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity to enhance the current ways that it's done in our industry 
And we're always at the forefront of discussions on those too. So exactly to your point, I've now created, well, kind of stepping back, we tend to be very linear in our art form where if it's going to be for stage, like we're so focused on everything working for stage for so many years, and then it gets to stage and then, well, hmm, what would it look like as a podcast? What would it look like as a film? If you're smart as you're developing the assets, things, for example, like the music that's been orchestrated and recorded at a level enough can be used on a podcast, can be used on stage, can be used on film, can be used. And so we're looking at that layering approach of possibly investing what might be considered a little bit more earlier, Mm. but greatly smashing the total time to development and ultimately greatly reducing the overall cost. And, and the, are those assets then part of the package to licensing that production that it can wander in journey so that if, if a high school production wants to make a film version of it, they have the assets to be able to repurpose that way versus if someone else wants to do a VR version or a stage version, it can then it can be licensed out in a much more broad manner to serve a variety of different use cases. That's exactly it. 100%. That's so cool. That's so cool. That, that, that is the premise of everything that we're working on and always looking at equitable ways so that we can bring in new voices who, like the, the mission statement of our nonprofit is taking the starving out of artists. And to do that, you have to create sustainable work so that it's not the old adage is you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Well, that's for a fraction right. of the artists you happy to be lucky enough to be the choreographer on Wicked, Hamilton, whatever it is. But I know so many amazing choreographers, so many amazing lighting designers who've done 20 Broadway shows, but they didn't get that one that just yep. tipped. That's not sustainable. Right. And it's also really difficult, really difficult to take risks then on new projects And we have to take risks. The only way we're going to get new stories, new voices in is realize that we've got to create foundations for these artists to explore and not follow what I think the story needs to be, but follow what they think. And maybe I might have little advice, but they can tell me when it's not important. And if we create what what we're talking about here, immediately it's so much easier for it to be seen in different formats, which means more people are going to experience that story. And it's more monetizable. Exactly. And we take the starving out of artists. Beautiful. Now, when it comes to the idea of the application of things like blockchain, what I've always loved about it is the the honest ledger of it in the sense that it has almost a built-in royalty to it. So the original creator can can journey with wherever that piece of content or media ends up. Does this mean that if I built a chair for your production that as a designer, then I can actually participate passively in whatever the licensing or success of that asset is long-term. That's exactly what we're exploring right now is how do we, cause some of the people will be external. Some will be internal. There's so many models. There's profit sharing. There's, as you say, the, the royalty structure and I want to build it for E, again, all of the above, so that it's not fits best what we do. It fits best. It it fits for what people want to do. I mean, if imagine 10 friends get together and they all create something early on, and that chair that you created ends up being on some set of something or on some Broadway show. Now, you may have done a complete buyout, and they gave you... 20 bucks and a Starbucks gift card. And you're like, well, that's so cool. (laughs) And maybe you're happy with that because that got you your next gig. So I'm not saying no to any of that. But if you are coming to it and everybody is putting a lot of risk up front, that's where, just like in a startup where you have shares and you have other ways of incentivizing people, I want to create that same structure because... We did that. We've made two feature films based on staged musicals where instead of taking them to uh, directly to the stage audience, we rented a theater, shot them all in two weeks. And in that contract, we 
for the lead creatives, we all gave them a small percentage, even though we didn't have to, we could have done it a different way. We just felt like that was the equitable way yeah. to do things. And yeah, it's, it's all opening up in front of us. The one thing that I am balancing personally is that I'm also an advocate towards anything we can do to protect and possibly clean up our climate. And one of the challenges we face right now with the blockchain environment and crypto and NFTs is they are, they use a lot of energy. Yes. And we. Particularly the ones <laughs> that we're building uh, NFTs on. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, I know these are things that as long as we always keep cognizant about, we, we can solve because we, we do have more than enough renewable energy if harnessed in the right way just purely from the sun that it could run any NFT through history. But that's, again, that's my personal right, love. Right. Okay. Well, and, and I do still fly on planes. So I, I'm always looking at my personal carbon neutrality and I don't want to just exploit something at one cause just because it works one way. Sure. So I, having my eyes open to the different pieces, but the underlying principles behind it, as you said, with open leisure and, the transparency. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the part that is so beautiful yeah. about what's happening here. I, I agree wholeheartedly, I think, because, you know, back to your example about, you know, maybe someone was happy to do it for the $20 gift card, you know, because it got them the next job, but it still has to get them the next job. And having the name on the ledger, knowing who originated that work, I was actually so frustrated with early Twitter because I, I thought, oh, the retweet will allow us to cite each other so much more. Because you'll just you'll have the original citation right there. You'll know who originally said that thing, and instead of people just repurposing it and kind of like the the curation of other people's content to appear that you are putting out the level of content that needs to succeed in the algorithm, versus the idea of truly getting down to maybe someone has one really great idea, but that idea can infect and spread, and they actually get to then participate in the long tail of that idea versus. It just kind of gets bootlegged. Yeah. Yeah, the, the old long tail of digital. And <laughs> and we are we are navigating this. We whether we wanted to or not, we're pioneers. And I it's funny you mentioned Twitter because I remember at gosh, 10, 15, I don't remember how many years ago I was at a TED conference and they were Jack was effectively showing off Twitter. And you saw the character limit and you saw a few other things about it. And I, both sides of my brain started arguing with each other. So <laughs> the one side was, oh, come on. Like, who's going to want to do this? The other side is, this is democracy at its best. Right. Like, you, you just, you looked at the positives. And unfortunately, some people did, and they were visionaries, M myself included were those people that were so excited about the positives that it could bring that I think we were a little blind to the damage it can also do sure. when people use this stuff nefariously. And so because I've lived through that, I'm a little more cautious now as I'm, and maybe it's just age too, is not just technology for technology's sake, but really thinking about the human ramifications and, how with what we're building are not reinforcing systemic problems, but instead trying to find ways to move conversations forward. Do you see any of those similar traps in VR? That is your brain having an argument and there's, there's the great positives that you and I have talked a lot about, but there's also those negatives that you're concerned about. Yeah, definitely. And some of the, well, some of the, the books that we know, whether you talk about Snow Crash or Ready Player One, mm -hmm. they, they all touched on this, which is the addictive manner of what this technology can and will do. I mean, if we think that Twitter or Netflix or email is a dopamine hit, when you throw on that headset and it's one step away from being wired into your brain, yeah. I, a story that brings this home is when I got the first DK from Oculus, I mean, it took for 
ever to set that thing up. I mean, this was like the old days of high mem, low mem, and figuring out which system driver you had to do. I mean, it took about four hours just to see the first few things on it. And, and I mean, I even studied this, some of this in college when you had the old uh, diving dome on your head. <laughs> but I did get it working. And our son was probably 11 at the time, maybe 12, and wanted to try it. Put it on, did things for about 10 minutes, because, of course, you don't want to go too long at first. Right. And he took it off. And at the end, he said, whoa, now reality feels weird. Oh, yeah. And immediately, I just said, okay. I mean, this is the, if you think holding your phone is addictive, can you imagine when it's not a big ski goggle thing that pulls your neck forward? It's contacts or it's a cochlear implant or whatever it is that's put in there. And so my, when I'm looking at what this means for the future is how can we not reinforce biasy in the same way that social media has effectively amplified and in many ways led people down paths that are speaking to their fear, the amygdala. Mm. This thing's closer to our amygdala than anything is. How do we make sure that instead we're using it for empathetic connections like some one of the, one of the pieces we have everybody watch in theater accelerator is Felix and Paul's um, traveling while black. Yeah. That's Felix and Paul, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, we can fact check it. Exactly. I'll just say one of the things that we have people look at in theater accelerator is traveling while black, which the technology behind it is not complicated. They've taken a 3d camera and they've put it into certain locations that if you were a person of color, this would be a potentially normal day in the life based upon certain backgrounds. Well, no matter what race, color, gender you are, when you put that in, you can't but help feel more connected to somebody and what they're going through immediately. Like in the first scene, you just feel yourself there. And that piece now is, I don't know, three, five years old. And the technology has moved so far ahead. So when I hear people saying, well, I just can't understand what it's like for these refugees from pick a place, you can. right? And if we can help bridge, because as soon as you know somebody, it's a lot harder to hate somebody because you realize how much more you have in common than there, than are the actual differences when you really sit down and get a chance to connect. How do you think that that applies to our, our avatar nature on both 2D platforms and 3D platforms? Do you think that that disconnects us from that humanity of feeling like, oh, no, 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 I, I know this fellow human that has an experience that I now connect with. You're like, no, I know a robot <laughs> that I, like, do you think that that, disconnects us or do we need that necessarily division to kind of universally see everyone as a purple uh, robot? Um, I'm sure people are already writing PhD thesis and, and looking at all of the different ramifications of this. I mean, it's kind of the difference between Stevenson's snow crash and Klein's ready player one. Sure. I mean, in snow crash, it's you're really yourself or a version of yourself. You, you can devolve into something black and white if you don't have enough money. So he, he does introduce the idea of class system, which now you jump fast forward and you look at something like a Fortnite, for example, sure. that allows you to be more Oasis-like where you can be these different characters and you can buy your way into certain things in the same way you can in the Oasis. And so much is driven by commerce Uh, We all know that Zuckerberg stood on a stage and said that 20% of the employees are working on these initiatives. The metaverse is going to be bigger than the internet, and we're going all in. We see Microsoft's last conference a few months back, or or I guess four or five months back now, where they released all of the mesh examples. 
we know Amazon has already dipped their toe in with their glasses and mm-hmm. you already look at Alexa. Now she's going to talk. <laughs> any second. Um, and of course, I mean, the rumors of uh, a la Apple yep. and what they're doing. The too. endless rumors. Yeah. Um, these are huge questions. And again, like me, Tim, 20 years ago when I was building systems, I always felt like technology is going to do what technology is going to do. It's the people that have to decide. But that's one thing when you're talking about an accounting system or you're talking about a trading system. When you get into what's being developed with places like OpenAI where they're actually writing songs and stories or you start somebody who's two years old learning in VR, what's that going to do? The statistics are already terrible about the younger generation, the college-age generation when it comes to anxiety. And yes, a lot of that is due to what's happened in the last two years in our world, but they've grown up with these little dopamine hits almost their entire life. We still don't even know what that's, that's doing to the formation. And within, I mean, I think we all have our different timelines, but it's feeling very much like we are at the tipping point of the excel, the S curve, the acceleration up when it comes to the R's, whether it's AR, VR, XR, EIAO, or whatever you (laughs) want to call it. But we're, we're going up it now. So being cognizant is critical. It sounds like it really comes back to responsible programming about what stories are we telling? How are we really pursuing and presenting empathy? You know, if, if, these, if these R's are just a hammer, they're just a tool, you can use it as a weapon or you can hang a painting with it. Um, yeah. What does it come to when you're mentoring these projects and so many artists over the years, what is your advice for people who want to mentor and share knowledge and resources to help us get on that path towards programming more empathetic and more supportive or constructive futures? I look to storytellers that inspired me to be who I am. So I, people will ask you this question. If, if you could meet one person, who would you pick? <laughs> right. Who would you go to dinner with? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of times I look at people like Walt Disney, who, of course, like any human, had flaws, but his general want of creating environments for family, like that's was such a fabric of his DNA, whether it was the films that you were watching or when he was with his daughter and he was near a carnival and it just felt like, eh, it's dirty. I don't want to spend time there. I want something where the family can go to be closer when they leave. And as we look at, it's a challenge because even in VR right now, a lot of the games that are doing well are these shooter games. Like that's just not an area I go down. When I'm looking at content, I don't want to do anything with guns in it. It's just a personal choice that I, that I have. And I want to, It's probably one of the most, in fact, it is more complicated, the question that you then, then asked, right. if you asked me, right. can you talk about the technology to get us there? Like, I see the roadmap for the tech that's going to get us there. It's the human responsibility that I can sense from being part of consortiums that's being built. Can it be built and will it be built and unified enough that commercial viability doesn't just take over and move it forward. And my one thing that does give me hope is a lot of these people that have done very well financially on the dot-com, what do you, whatever you want to call it, dot-com one and dot-com two, Mm -hmm. like the first people in the 2000s and then the ones that have made the money off all of the social apps. When you talk to almost all of them right now, they're dedicating their life to responsible social Computing, they have more money than they know what to do with. And they know they've created something that could (laughs) either move humanity to an all new high level or destroy humanity. And they don't want to leave the planet knowing that they're the one that created the widget that destroyed humanity. Speaking of widgets that might destroy humanity, um, (laughs) 
I, I'd be curious, you know, if there's, we do this podcast specifically to kind of signal boost and reach out to the community. If there's currently something you're seeking in your process that will open up your next level um, or your next work, um, whether that's a resource or a type of collaborator you're seeking, or if you could shout out to the world and say like, I'm looking to have dinner with this person <laughs> or find this tool. It's an excellent question. I'm usually terrible at asking for anything. I'm much better as if somebody asks me for help to, I would say if there's one thing right now that would help me is ways to continue our in-depth reach to other thought leaders and decision makers in the entertainment industry to have these dialogues about the interdisciplinary growth for those of us that want to create a more equitable environment for artists. Because once mm. I get in a room with those people, they get it because I'm able to show it to them. Before that, it's we're still seen as bleeding edge. We're not bleeding edge anymore. We're cutting edge. And there is some bleeding edge technology. But when you think about the price right. of getting somebody in a headset, it's now 300 bucks. That's a third of a new phone. And if I can sway somebody to be more empathetic yeah, with $300, that's, that's the best $300 I've ever spent. Um, so if anyone works in the entertainment industry and has not bought in yet or has not gone into the matrix, Tim wants to take you there, <laughs> show you all the good things that you could do with the world. <laughs> and how, if someone's out there listening, can they get in touch uh, with you? Through you. No, there's a, <laughs> there's a number of different ways I, I mean i am on the social channels so there is dming and also just through our website nycoc.org there's a contact on that that's our nonprofit. that's the easiest way to get a hold of me because if i don't see it somebody will see it because yeah we're looking for that and then we're also again looking at the transmedia opportunities when it becomes as these assets are being created looking at it in, in different disciplines Tim, thank you so much for uh, having the conversation. You are more than welcome. And thank you for hosting these conversations. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you because you're definitely like-minded. Thank you so much to Tim for the conversation. If you want to join me on the show, find me online at the handle Brendan A. Bradley or go to fifthwallforum.com to find out more. I'm Brendan Bradley wishing you a happy Friday and I'll see you next time. 